for Business podcast with me, Lauren Snell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain, behavioral and organizational sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. As always, make sure to follow us on Twitter at brain and LinkedIn, or else we look forward to your feedback and comments by email to laurie at brainforbusiness.ie. The question of whether we have free will does not have a yes or no, all or none answer. Instead, we have degrees of freedom, an idea that is reasonably well captured by a more common sense understanding of the still useful notion of free will. That understanding entails first the ability to make choices, that we really can choose what to do. Our actions are not simply determined by outside forces because we're causally set apart from the rest of the universe to at least some degree. And just as importantly, we are not driven by our own parts. Rather, we holistically ourselves are in charge. So says our guest today on the Brain for Business podcast, Dr. Kevin Mitchell. Kevin Mitchell is an Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College, Dublin. Kevin's research is aimed at understanding the genetic program specifying the wiring of the brain and its relevance to variation in human faculties, especially to psychiatric and neurological disease and to perceptual conditions like synesthesia. As part of his research, Kevin also studies the biology of agency and free will. Kevin is an active communicator on Twitter and writes a popular blog on the intersection of genetics, development, neuroscience, psychology, and psychiatry. He also regularly gives public lectures and media interviews on diverse topics with the goal of promoting public understanding of neuroscience and genetics. Kevin's 2018 book, Innate, How the Wiring of Our Brains Shapes Who We Are, published by Princeton University Press, develops an integrative conceptual framework in which to consider the origins of variation in human faculties through a novel synthesis of findings from behavioral genetics, developmental neurobiology, neuroscience, and psychology. Kevin's most recent book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will, is published on the 3rd of October, 2023, also by Princeton University Press. Kevin, welcome to Brain for Business. Thanks, Lawrence, very much. Thanks for having me. Let's start with, I guess, the big question. What is this thing, free will? Yeah, it's it's great. People often want to start with a very tight definition. Um, they sort of feel like it's it's more scientific to define something really, really tightly, and then and then we all know what we're talking about. My own approach is sort of to describe the phenomenon, really, that that I think we need to explain, which is that uh, it certainly feels for us that we can make choices in the world, that, that we're thinking about things, we have reasons for doing things, we can deliberate on our actions, and then we can choose to do one thing or another. That, that I think is our common everyday experience. And of course, you know, some things we deliberate over much more than others. Lots of things are, are more sort of automatic and habitual behaviors, but, but many things we, we feel like we're, you know, we can feel the process of deliberating. We can even actually articulate it to each other, right? We can say, well, maybe I should do this because of A or not because of B, and we can weigh those options and, and come to a decision. So, so that's what it feels like. And yet there's a challenge, well, there's many challenges to that idea. First, the first one really is, is that, well, okay, we can do things for reasons, but did we choose our own reasons or are we just wired a certain way? And, you know, you mentioned the 2018 book Innate, 
which is really all about that. It's it's that we don't come as blank slates. We do have psychological predispositions. Um, so we're kind of pre-wired a certain way that influences our behavior. So maybe, you know, how free are we if our reasons didn't, you know, if we didn't decide on our own reasons? So that's one challenge. You can go down a level and say, well, look, actually, all that psychological stuff is nice, but really it's just neural circuits firing. Neuroscience shows it's this system or that brain region that's involved. When you do such and such, we can go in in humans, especially in animals, we can you know, activate these neurons or those neurons and make the animal behave in certain ways. So, so really, it's just a big neural machine, right? It's just a big mechanism. And maybe we're just kind of pre-programmed robots. And then the physicists have a, a, an even deeper sort of existential threat there, which is to say, look, those neural circuits, it's nice. It's cute that you think there's causation happening at that level. But really, it's just atoms and and quantum fields and particles and the laws of physics are going to dictate what happens in a physical system, which is what you are. There's no sense in which causation can actually be vested at a higher level, the level of the whole organism. So those are the challenges that I set out to address in the book. And I, and I think they can be met. Now, if I guess we take that sort of physical perspective, if I can call it that on free will, d- does that suggest that just as we evolved as creatures from somewhere uh, at a certain point in time, that free will and our ability to engage with free will ha- has also evolved over time. Because I'm, I'm guessing here that the, the free will that we as hopefully sentient beings have is going to be different to that of, of a dog or a cat or a bird or an amoeba even. Yeah, so um, absolutely. And I think if you think about, you know, the problems that I was just talking about, these challenges to free will, really they're challenges to the idea of agency at all, to the idea that any living thing can be said to do something, to act in the world. And to me, that's fundamentally what what divides life from non-life. Living things can do things, right? A rock doesn't do anything. A planet doesn't do anything. Things happen to them or near them or in them but there's no sense of an action being taken by a whole entity. So yeah, you can take an evolutionary approach if you want to understand free will in humans, which is all tied up with these really complex issues of moral responsibility and mysterious things like consciousness and so on. If you want to ground that and get the basic concepts of how an organism can do something, then an evolutionary approach is really useful. And you can start by saying, well, what is it what does it even mean to be a living organism? And, and really, a living being is a set of processes, very dynamical set of processes that keep themselves going through time. And they have to work at it, right? They have to take in energy and, and, and matter and so on to keep themselves organized just so as themselves. And that, in one way to, to do that in a dynamic changing environment, is to be able to move around and to sense what's in the environment and then to be able to act on it in ways that promote persistence. And so you can ground some some notions that otherwise sound kind of unscientific, like things like purpose and Mm. meaning and value. They sound kind of mystical and wooey, right? Uh, (laughs) But it's not like they're not grounded like information. Like we have a whole technology around information. We We don't have a meaning technology. 
But for living organisms, those things, meaning and purpose and value are crucial, right? That's what they need to get around. So when they get some information about something out in the world, what the organism needs to know, even a single cell being like an amoeba or a bacterium, what they need to know is, should I go towards that thing or should I go away from it? And the answer to that question is basically given by natural selection. Bacteria which tended to go towards food survived and reproduced. And bacteria which tended to go towards threats like, you know, high pH environments or something like that were killed and didn't have offspring. So um, so you get purpose, really, the purpose is just to persist. And then the, the things in the environment have meaning and value relative to that goal. So if you ground things in that way, I, I think you can get a more naturalistic view of agency that's very non-mysterious and, and is ultimately, you know, the bedrock of what it means to be a living being. And then we can say, okay, across evolution, how did those control systems, which is basically, you know, what I just described, having a configuration that says, when I get this signal, I should go that way. When I get that signal, I should go the other way. So how do those control systems get elaborated through evolution? And of course, with the evolution of nervous systems that are allow organisms to to develop much more sophisticated sort of views and models of what's out in the world, especially over much longer timeframes, um, and to juggle more sorts of information, to process more information, to, to manage more goals at the same time when they, you know, there might be conflicts between them. Those are the systems that we see elaborating through through evolution, ultimately to the point that we see in humans. If we build upon that point then, and without at all wanting to, to be flippant, could we possibly reframe was a Descartes dictum, I think, therefore I am, to actually be, I move, therefore I am. And, and that is a key element of, of free will and, and a definition of a, a living being. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, so in one way, you can think about some living beings that don't move around. Right. You know, so um, and it's a perfectly good strategy. Uh, I mean, plants do very well for themselves. Right. So you can be in a live thing without uh, where where the actions that you take are just internal actions. They're reconfigurations of your own metabolism as conditions change, you know, over the course of a day or with the weather or over the seasons and so on. Right. So so that is one strategy. It's perfectly viable and a good one. But another strategy, which is what animals use, is this ability to move and to act on the world, not just to act on yourself, right? But to act on the world as a causal agent in and of yourself, right? So at one level, the important thing for any living being is that it's separated from the environment in a physical sense, right? In a thermodynamic sense, it keeps itself separated from the causes that are happening outside to, to a large extent. Taking that to the next sort of level, what happens with animals that can move and that can act on the world is that they now become causes in the world of, uh, you know, acting on the universe. And yeah, so I think that that ability to act and then the ability to autonomously control what action you take is really the, the, the key thing that separates animate life from inanimate. Okay. We're talking there about how free will has possibly sort of evolved over time. Can it also be said that our understanding and conceptualization of free will has evolved over time? And I'm thinking here that, say, once upon a time, it was very much about 
following you know uh, religious rules and so on that's still the case in some places but it's broken mm. down in others or or equally you know you had your lot in life and and there was fate and so on and it just was yeah has our understanding in that sense of free will also evolved yeah i think it has i mean i'm not i'm not a historian or or a, or a sociologist uh, certainly not a theologian uh, but there <laughs> are some interesting sort of aspects to that i mean if you look at you know, a lot of ancient religions, they were very um, fatalistic. They would say, you know, things are in the hands of the gods. The gods have decided they we're, we're just being, we're just pawns in the game. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I mean, I think the Vikings, the ancient Greeks and so on, you know, a lot of them had that, had that view. The Catholic church is interesting in that they have their, you know, their position on free will is that this was a, a gift bestowed to humans, right? not other animals, to humans by God. And that, it enables us to make decisions, but it also means that we're morally responsible for those decisions. And it's a way out of the, it's way out of the problem um, created by thinking that God is omnipotent, uh, omnipotent and omniscient and all good. And why would he allow bad things to happen? So, so it's like, well, no, you can't blame him. Uh, he gave us free will and now we can exercise that. So that's really, I mean, from a sort of sociological point of view, there's various strands that you can follow, and they differ in different societies, but are ways of thinking about that. What I guess, what's closer to my own sort of field, I suppose, is the thinking that comes from neuroscience in particular, or even, mm. you know, behavioral genetics, for example, you know, these sources of evidence that seem to indicate that we really are just neural machines, and that we can reduce all of our cognitive experiences and our psychology to these neurons firing or those neurons firing and that's what has the causal sort of power in the system and it's hard to get away from that and it feels like a lot of modern neuroscience just reinforces that over and over again right on a daily basis we have some new study that's showing these neurons make the animal do that and so within that context then it's hard to think of how you can rescue the idea of free will and agency and animals doing things for reasons and cognition being a real thing uh, without falling into a kind of dualism where there's some sort of immaterial mind or soul or spirit that supposedly can push things around. But hopefully, I mean, that, that's what I try to do in, in the book is arrive at a naturalistic point of view where we can see actually there is causal power in the organization of the system. First of all, at the, in terms of the physics, the physics is, is just not deterministic. And so there's some causal slack in the system. You know, if you have the complete physical state of a system right now, which in fact is unknowable in detail, doesn't actually fully predict what's going to happen. It doesn't settle the outcome. That allows some sort of macroscopic structure to arise, some organization to arise, where the way the, or the, the system is organized constrains uh, how the parts behave. It doesn't violate the laws of physics, just adds another level of constraint to um, to what they're doing. Everything you're 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 saying, you know, make makes a huge amount of sense. But you know, when we bring it forward to the modern day, and obviously you have been talking about modern day humans, etc., as well. Um, but is to an extent free will possibly some kind of mirage? You know, we 
we tend to be fairly, as human beings, fairly predictable uh, in many of our responses to the world around us, whether we're thinking about our our, our choices of, of maybe what to what to eat or what to do. Uh, and, and equally, a lot of our choices, despite that idea of human agency, can be can be influenced. Um, so I'm thinking, for example, about choice architecture and nudges and and and, and even on a on a really mundane level, things like you know fast food restaurants saying, you know, have it your way, to have it any way you want. But but in reality, they know that there's a fairly limited set of choices and they can can influence those. So to go back to that, I guess, base question, is it possibly a bit of a mirage? Well, uh, I mean, if you were to think, so one one sort of definition of free will is that you can make a choice absolutely free from any prior cause whatsoever. So it's you're looking for an uncaused cause in the in the philosophical terminology. And to me, if you dig into that a little bit, it becomes entirely incoherent very quickly. Because if you were to do something for with no nothing, no information causing you to do it or influencing you, mm. then you're just doing it for no reason. Right. And and that's not freedom. That's just random behavior. You wouldn't you wouldn't be alive for very long if that's what you did, right? You have <laughs> sort of some fundamental reasons for doing things, even just wanting to stay alive, which are constraints. Right. So those constraints, you can see, you you know, if you want to say, you, oh, there are constraints, well, then you don't have free will in that sense. Well, fine. I mean, I, that's just a sort of a boring argument to my mind, if you want to frame it in absolutist terms. What's more interesting is to say, well, how do those constraints actually, first of all, enable adaptive behavior through time, but also in they actually comprise the self, right? So what is it, what is it to be a self through time? It's like I said, for a simple living organism, it's to maintain a certain pattern of, of dynamical processes that make the self and to stop all that stuff from becoming not self. Mm. Now you can, you can expand that idea to our psychology. What is it that makes us ourselves it's the fact that we have some continuity of behavior through time that we have a personality that we have character traits that we have memories and attitudes and policies and habits right that's what that's what makes us us now all of those are constraints but if you strip them away we disappear right there just would be no us left so yes we have degrees of freedom as you said in the in the quote from the start we don't have absolute freedom that's an incoherent notion we have degrees of freedom and Actually, you know, many of those constraints are good things because, like I said, these, you know, the habits and policies, for example, these are things that we've learned through hard work and through paying attention. We've learned what works in this situation, what works in that situation, what's a, what's generally a good way to behave over time in society, in business, in my in the workplace, at home, whatever, right? So all of those things are constraints, but they're useful constraints. Because they mean we don't have to think about every aspect of every element of our behavior in every moment, right? We never could. If we had to make every decision from first principles in every moment, we'd never do anything. So we offload a lot of that. We've thought about it already. Why? We don't need to think about it again. We've thought about it already. And so a lot of our behavior really is habitual. Now, I, I think many people will look at that and they'll say, oh, well, you know, you didn't decide in the moment to do X. It was just your brain is configured that way because you've learned. Therefore, you never make a decision. And that's just fallacious reason. In the same way, you can say, oh, look, you can be influenced by advertising or whatever. And there's these subconscious things that are pushing you around. Therefore, you can never have any conscious deliberative control. 
Again, that's just a, a false conclusion to draw. So it's true that we have these influences on our behavior. It's true that we offload a lot of our decision-making to things that we have pre-decided, habits and policies and so on. Neither of those means that we can't, in a moment, decide to deliberate if we want to. If we want to take the wheel, as it were, and exercise more conscious control, we can do that. And, and what's interesting in, in, you know, in humans that really separates us from other animals, where you know, other animals can think about what's in the world, they can think about their model of their own self, they can have different goals and objectives and so on and, and figure out what would be a good way to do them. We do all that. We have all that control architecture, but we have at least one sort of more level where we can think about our own thoughts mm. and we can reason about our own reasons. Those become objects of cognition in themselves. We can talk to each other about them. So this, this metacognition, this ability for introspection and, and so on, gives us, uh, I think, the, this extra aspect of rational control where we can decide even to override very basic impulses. And for example, you can decide not to have children. Now, evolution, there's natural selection screaming in the corner. What are you doing? How could you do that? <laughs> but we can, right? So we have that rational ability that you know comes along with all this other control architecture that is you know more subconscious and more habitual. The key word that jumped out at me as you were talking there was, was adaptive. And, and I guess starting with the example I gave of a fast food restaurant, and I know it's simplistic and possibly a bit flippant, but if I know that if I order that burger and it's got onion on it, then I'm actually going to feel quite sick because either I'm allergic to onion or it disagrees with me. So therefore, an adaptive response would be to order it without onion. Uh, so I have, we have that free will because, as you said, otherwise it would be completely random. But also perhaps that final example you gave there of someone choosing or not to, to have children, because it might be a case that I would love to have children. However, I know that I carry a particular genetic condition yeah. and it would be unfair. So we have that free will in order to make those decisions. Is that a fair analysis? Yeah, I think so. Right. I mean, you, you know, the, the onion example is a good one. You've, you, you can decide in the moment. You can say, oh, you know what? I better not get onions. They disagreed with me the last time. Or you can have pre-decided, right? You, that can just be your habit is you go in and you say, I'd like the Big Mac, no onions, please, or whatever. And so, yeah, I think that that sums it up pretty well. And the, the, the point, I guess, is not to say it has to be all one, one type of cognition and control of behavior, all sort of conscious in the moment, deliberate, deliberative stuff, or it, it's, or it has to be all habitual and we're just pre-programmed robots. Yeah. There, there's a, a marriage of those things where the deliberative systems, you know, which evolved later, they didn't replace the other systems. They're an extra level of control on top of those. And again, they're adaptive, right? I mean, they're what, they're what let us plan over very long timeframes. They're what let us uh, communicate with each other and do collective action, the kind of thing that has allowed us to populate the entire world and all the environments in it, basically. So there's still, you know, we can still think of free will rather than thinking of this sort of mystical abstract thing. We can think this is an evolved biological capacity. It has some neural underpinnings to it, and we can look at those. And in fact, they can be damaged. You know, we we can see that you know some people those those capacities can be impaired, 
they can be impaired by things like psychiatric disorders or by uh, taking drugs or alcohol or, or other things. You brought in there the the idea of you know, when people organize into communities, societies, or possibly even organizations and businesses, how does free will play out in that context? Because say, if I go to organizational studies where I spend a lot of my time working and, and, and teaching, we talk a lot about things like culture and values and yeah. and shaping people's behavior and norms within particular contexts, rightly or wrongly. Do groups of people have free will? And, and I guess, conversely, do individuals have free will within those same groups? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Again, if you think about constraints, it just constraint sounds like a bad word and it sounds like the opposite of free will. But constraints can be enabling. Right? So they can allow things to happen at a higher level of organization that individual parts wouldn't have if they weren't constrained. And I mean, a, a simple example is a football team. Right, A football team, the managers can impose a strategy top down that constrains the, the uh, formations and the movements of the players towards a goal, right? Mm. But sometimes literally towards a goal in soccer. <laughs> so that idea of organizational top-down constraint is a very powerful one that enables things to happen at a level that, that wouldn't happen otherwise. And I think the analogy with organizations is really interesting because one of the things that you see in the brain, I mean, we were talking about this evolutionary trajectory where you're kind of adding more levels. What's interesting about the newer levels is that they tend to be concerned with things in the world over longer timeframes. So the kind of highest levels of the hierarchy the ones that are involved in long-term planning, for example, are concerned with long timeframes. And then they kind of pass down constraints that will influence or, or inform, maybe inform is a better word, the choice of a goal, the choice of a behavior or an activity at any moment. And that choice of a behavior or goal, or, or goal will inform your choice of an actual motor action. And that's a very immediate, very fast kind of choice. So... If you think in in a um, you know a lot of organizations, there's this kind of pyramidal hierarchical structure where you know the CEO and then the board are concerned with long-term strategy and planning and trends through time. And then as you go down through through management levels, down to you know maybe, let's say salespeople, they're concerned with making a sale right now, right, mm. executing an action right now. So they have a very um, much more sort of a short-term control and short-term goals, right? So it, what, what happens in the brain is it's a little bit less of a, of a top-down command structure. And it's a bit more of an interactive kind of a dialogue, if you will, where each element of the brain, say each region or, or, or level, is trying to, in a sense, satisfy its, its constraints, right? It, it's, it's trying to reach a state. It's got some sort of tension to it. Uh, where it's got some sensory information, say, or some, some information coming from the bottom up, and it's got a desired kind of a state that it's not in, so it wants to get into it. And it is constrained in doing that by top-down information that, that's concerned for with longer timeframes. So that, that might be policies and habits. It might be not just habits of doing things, but habits of thought as well. The, you know, the ideas that even occur to a person in a given circumstance are informed by experience and maybe so informed by experience that they get very channeled into into um, quite rigid kind of kind of ruts 
So that organizational structure, I think there's some parallels with business organizations, but in the brain, it's a little bit more of a recursive, uh, multi-way communicative settling into a consensus, if you will. It's a, basically, it's a massive optimization problem. Mm. But again, you know, many things in life, many things in business, I'm sure, are also massive optimization problems. I, I, absolutely. But I, and I think the the example you gave of, say, a soccer team um, makes a lot of sense because there is that predetermined goal, um, mm-hmm. quite literally a, a physical yeah. goal that we're trying to get the ball into. And the, the 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 manager will set a strategy and and this is how we're going to play. However, once the players are on the field and they're confronted by an opposition doing stuff that they don't necessarily predict or foresee, they also have to have certain degrees of freedom to respond to that. And when I say certain degrees of freedom, I guess what I'm getting at is, well, it is soccer. So no, you cannot just pick up the ball and run with it like a, a rugby or an American football. So it's by definition, there there are those constraints, but there's a reason for them. And there are overarching strategies, but also, uh, again, those degrees of freedom. Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, what you don't want in any situation like that is micromanaging, right? The, the manager can't be yelling at each player every moment of the, t- of, the de- of the match to say, you know, you go here and kick it, you know, kick it with your left foot. No, not your right foot, right? It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, yes, each level... And in, that, in this, this case, we're talking about the players has some autonomy uh, within this set of constraints. And the constraints are set by either, you know, top down policies and strategies or just by the general rules of the game. And, and so in living organisms, the constraints, the general rules of the game are, you know, just the way the environment is and what you need to, to survive and so on. And I think within the brain, each level has some autonomy and actually each neuron, right, each individual neuron has some autonomy. It's sort of taking in some information, it's surveying or monitoring its inputs, and then based on its its configuration, which is kind of a record of, of historical experience, it's coming to a decision about whether it should fire an electrical signal or not. So you can think about the brain as this massive collective of individual agents that are in many ways tightly constrained, uh, but still have some degrees of freedom themselves. And then they're organized into, into collectives, into ensembles, into regions of populations and levels and so on. And yeah, I think that to me, that's a good way of thinking about what's going on there. And it differs from this view of just, uh, you know, that I think we inherit from thinking about a reflex arc in, in, you know, when you tap your knee, there's a neuron that drives an electrical signal to your spinal cord and it drives a signal back to your muscle and it drives the muscle to contract. That driving kind of metaphor of electrical circuitry, it works for a reflex circuit. It doesn't work for cognition, right? Cognition is not one neuron driving another. It's this neuron looking at its inputs and taking some information and kind of making a decision. And and then that process being expanded over and over again at scale. If people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere that you would suggest they should go? Sure. Um, well, there's the the books, of course, and um, I have a website which is kjmitchell.com, and there's also a blog called Wiring the Brain. That's wiringthebrain.com, and I'm on Twitter at wiringthebrain. That sounds great, Dr. Kevin Mitchell of Trinity College in Dublin. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Lawrence. It was a pleasure. And just a reminder that Kevin's book, Free Agents, How Evolution Gave Us Free Will, 
He is published on the 3rd of October 2023 by Princeton University Press.